Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Loretta Smith about Alice Anderson. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Beth. Good to be here. Now, how did you, firstly, how did you come across all the information about Alice Anderson? Uh, well, um, I, I added up not long ago. I think I probably, um, with a lot of spaces in between, probably did at least three years full-time research because it wasn't easy to track a lot of this down and it was just uh pure determination that kept me going because Alice died aged 29 in 1926 and so when I started out being interested in her story I was actually told by a writing group that I wouldn't get enough information for a biography so I started writing it as historical fiction but look one thing led to another I went to all the usual places that you would do research I went to libraries spent hours in the State Library going through microfiche and looking at various newspaper articles. I went to the Lyceum Club where Alice was a member and searched their archives, got permission to search their archives. Uh, I went to Melbourne University archives because Alice's sister, older sister, has her archives there. And in amongst that, because I I was kind of pleased in a way when I first went there, um, this is Frances Derham's archives. She was uh, well known in her own right as as an artist and an early childhood art specialist. And she was kind of the matriarch. She was the older sister of of all the siblings. And she kept everything. And no one had really gone through it. So I stumbled across things that other people that had researched Alice Anderson in the past for, for small articles and things like that, when, when they were doing that in the 80s and 90s, Frances Derham was still alive. And so it's kind of like once she died, uh, a lot of more material was, was made available in a sense and things that probably the family weren't even aware of. There were letters I found that in Alice's own hand that she'd written from her trip um, when she went to Alice Springs in her little baby Austin and there were all sorts of uh, bits and pieces that no one else had discovered. So that was incredibly exciting and I think it would be for any researcher to stumble across information that no one else has seen, possibly since um, Alice died and probably all her belongings were just thrown into boxes from the garage and hadn't been looked at since. So that was exciting. Uh, I also uh, spoke to uh, some of Alice's relatives who were 
uh, very supportive and gave me what information and photographs they had. Um, Dr. Mimi Colligan, uh, she was the first one to write a little bit about Alice Anderson and she only knew about her because her mother learnt to drive at the Alice Anderson Motor School in the 1930s, which was after Alice died, but the, the garage did keep going. And she's um, an historian. And so I went to her and it took a year. I had to really uh, cultivate the uh, close friendship with her and an understanding that anything she gave me I would send to some archives somewhere um, and wouldn't keep them for myself and she had original photograph albums that she'd picked up from um, old garage girls that she interviewed in the early 1980s and when she went to return the albums they died and so she just held on to these things. She was off doing a PhD on something completely different and sort of never got back to the material. And she also had little cassette recordings that from the 1980s where she'd interviewed Alice's sisters. And some interviews I did find on the National Library, in the National Library archives that other people had done radio interviews with Alice's older sister in particular, more about her work than Alice, but there was information included there. The most difficult thing was tracking down relatives of garage girls because in these photo albums I had, they weren't, most of them weren't marked. And so there were, I had names from various uh, interviews and articles uh, without photographs and I had some photographs without names and I knew if I was going to write her biography, I couldn't just write about Alice and put in two sentences about the garage girls because they were incredibly important to the garage. And Alice trained all her garage girls. She had about eight at any one time employed directly with her. Um, but we don't know how many she actually trained and apprenticed over the years that she ran the garage. So I was very fortunate to track down. And also good old Facebook. I set up Alice Anderson Garage Girl Facebook page and some people came to me through that. So, uh, yeah, that was exciting. I'd set that up maybe. Oh, it's probably ended up being about five years before the book came out and I had no idea it would take that long, but that's how long some things take, especially in the publishing world. So there was a good five years that I had information. I more or less used it as a blog. I added a lot of the key photos that I had and asked questions about, does anyone know this person or that person or have a look at this? So in the end, yeah, I ended up having enough to write the whole book. Well, that's quite incredible. Can you give us a bit of background about Alice? Well, uh, she was born in 1897, and that happened to be the year that the first cars, experimental cars, self-built ones, came on the roads in Australia. Um, and then around that time, we had the first imports from overseas. So Australia wasn't really behind with, with um, developing cars and, uh, well, importing cars. We didn't actually have our own industry um, until after World War II, simply because of the um, population here. There wasn't really enough population to develop uh, cars in our own right. 
and uh, she was born into a upper middle class family. Her parents were Irish Protestants, and they'd uh, come out in the early or the mid eighteen hundreds to Australia, and so all the all the family were um, all the siblings were born in Australia, and she was the third of six children. Right. So, did she? go through having a mechanic sort of apprenticeship and how difficult would that have been back in those days? Uh, it was very difficult. She sort of, uh, she, there weren't even normal, normal channels to go through. Certainly women were encouraged to learn how to drive, uh, particularly because Australia, we're talking, you know, the well, her garage started up in uh 1917 was her driving service and she built her garage in 1919 in Kew and her father was an engineer and he had a engineering company with John Monash he he actually trained John Monash at Melbourne University and they uh were the first people in Victoria to have the rights to build reinforced concrete bridges which were actually a new technology so many of the bridges in uh, Victoria in particular were built by Monash and Anderson and some of them were designed by um, Joshua Thomas Noble Anderson their father's full name Um, and he um, set up well first of all let me go back he set up a um, a driving a, a passenger cooperative in Healesville and uh, based at the Blackspur garage and he got everyone involved because uh, this was around 1916 when uh, Sharabanks were just coming into play and their big um, giant open-seated buses and before then people were travelling around the Yarra Valley very dangerously on unmade roads with horse and carriage, and particularly around the Black Spur, there was at least one fatality every year where the horses would, you know, get stuck in mud, fly over the edge, whatever. And so he thought this was a safer form of transport. And uh, they came into effect around that time because the tyres they were building were strong enough to carry the weight of these huge buses. So he got all the locals invested in it and... uh, um, it was meant to be cooperative. He was a Fabian socialist, and so he uh, set it up in a way that everybody was involved. But he was terrible with money. He was a very bad businessman, and he would do things on a whim. And one day in Melbourne, he was walking past a, a showroom, car showroom, and he saw this big, shiny American tourer. He just fell in love with it. And he thought, well, for the more upper class person, they might want to drive in a more specialist vehicle rather than a Sharabank. And so he immediately put a deposit on it. And this car, the deposit he put on the car, which is I think about 270 pounds or something from memory, at the time would pay for a little ordinary car. And the total cost was about 800 pounds. So it was hugely expensive and it would carry around seven passengers. And then he went back to the board because he'd set up a board as part of this cooperative. And they said, look, Joshua Thomas Noble Anderson, 
our whole idea was to have transport for all and we're not prepared to actually um, absorb the cost of this car. So he was left a little bit stranded and um, not long after that it happened to be Alice Anderson's 18th birthday. So guess what she got for her birthday present, much to her shock, because at this stage the, the family didn't have a lot of money. They went from uh, riches to rags to riches all the time because of um, JT's poor investments and just bad money management, even though he would, you know, generally earn quite a bit of money. Um, but he made a lot of enemies along the way as well. So uh, she was given the keys to this huge hutmobile that, you know, she could hardly see over the steering wheel because she was a petite little thing. And uh, But she also got given the debt to go along with it. So she had to learn how to drive to pay off the debt to be able to have the car. And as Alice turned 18, that's when um, official licences just came in. So, like, you have to be 18 to drive in Victoria now. It was the same then. So uh, she ended up becoming the secretary to the Blackspur Motor Service because she'd done a bit of bookkeeping at school. And, of course, um, Alice Anderson was a very, very confident even as a young girl, she was very confident and she knew what she wanted and she wanted to be on the move and she did not stay in that office very often. She was next door in the, um, the workshop uh, talking to all the drivers and the mechanics there and saying, can you show me how to do this and do that? Will you teach me to drive? And they said they were very reluctant because she was, you know, a, a teenage petite girl and they said, well, you shouldn't be driving big cars anyway and particularly not in this area uh, and because she would have had to have learnt on the Sharabanks. So they said, we'll only teach you if once you know how to um, uh, pull an engine apart and put it back together again. And they probably thought that would dissuade her, but she was very, very clever young woman, it's a bit like her father who was, you know, brilliant in terms of engineering. And so she did that quite quickly and, they ended up being incredibly surprised at how good she was at doing everything. And um, long story short, she ended up becoming the, uh, the, the Blackspur Motor Service ended up getting the, um, the mail service in those towns around Healesville. And uh, she ended up being the driver to, in, with the Sharabank going over the Blackspur, very, very dangerous. And she was only 18, 19 at the time, delivering the mail in this one of these giant open buses. So that's how she learned to drive. But in order to open a garage, she had to actually learn to become a mechanic. Now, all the men um, would go pretty much to the Working Man's College, which is now RMIT. And, uh, but, of course, they wouldn't accept women into the mechanical course. You could go there to learn how to sew and do things like that. So even though it was called the Working Men's College, women could do some courses there. And they were overloaded with um, men coming back from World War I and wanting to study mechanics. Her, she gleaned a little bit from her father, but he was reasonably unreliable and they had um, at some stages a quite difficult relationship so uh, she just kept going around to garages and saying will you take me on as an apprentice mechanic and they all laughed her out because it, it 
it wasn't too different to what most workshops probably are now in most all men's garages where they, um, or maybe it's improved a little bit recently, but, you know, they'd have the, the sexy girl calendar on the wall and they'd all swear like troopers and it was, wasn't a place where women should be. And so she ended up finding someone that had a garage in Elizabeth Street in the city and he said to her, oh, you'll, you'll hear a lot of swearing here, tried to put her off, and she said, blinked her eyes and just said, oh, but I probably won't understand any of it. <laughs> and anyway, he took her on and she was driving her car around taking people on little day tours and things at this stage. So she'd started to earn money to pay back the car, but she, her next dream was to open up her own garage, um, which would become the first um, all-women garage in Australia, not just Victoria. Uh, so um, she would go there first thing in the morning. She would go there after work at night and she trained with him for six months and he said later on that she was the best student he'd ever had and so that's how she came to study and um, be very very good at mechanics as well as driving. That, that is quite an achievement and a lot of determination there too. Mm. So mm. so when was it that she did open up her, her own garage and what were the circumstances surrounding that? Well she had she bought it at a, a cottage in um Q uh, in Cotham Road, number 67 Cotham Road. And even though it was a wealthy area, there were still some little rundown houses. And this was a little weatherboard um, where a, a Scottish spinster lived. And so she had borders to make money. And uh, she was a funny thing. And Alice actually started her quote unquote garage from the back falling down shed of this. Um, Borders Place, and she, her sister, who was an artist, helped her design a business card that made it look like she ran a full garage. Oh, really, she was only driving people around, but uh, she, she kind of, well, it was kind of a white lie, really, but she got away with it, and she got um, Miss Cadditch, the, the Scottish landlord, to actually answer phones because the woman had a telephone. Not everybody had a telephone in those days. And this was in 1917. And once she'd um, acquired her mechanics licence, she looked across the road diagonally to number 88 Cotham Road, which was on a corner of Charles Street and Cotham Road, and it was a big double plot, and she thought, she dreamt about buying this block of land and building her own, designing and building her own garage. But, of course, in those days, a woman couldn't just go and get a bank loan. They had to be, um, they, they had to get it through their husbands. And uh, a single or a married woman up until the 1980s in Australia could not go and get a bank loan on their own, which is incredible when you think about it. Um, so it was up until fairly recently. So um, her father agreed to underwrite her, but the banks wouldn't accept him because he was pretty shaky in the financial department. And um, even uh, one of her younger sisters who was working as a secretary offered to help out. But she wouldn't have been earning much. And so when her father um, couldn't underwrite her, she actually decided to not involve family at all. And we don't quite know how she borrowed the money. 
uh, there were a few, there's some speculation, but it would have had to have been through a man, but she did get a bank loan and she designed and built her own garage that a female architect wrote in a woman's magazine was one of the best buildings she'd ever seen designed. And it was unlike most garages at the time. It was absolutely huge. She originally wanted it to be three stories. She had this dream of having all, she decided that they were going to only be women employees and she'd have all these garage girls, you know, sleeping (laughs) upstairs and the workshop would be on the second floor and then downstairs would be the office and everything else. Uh, But, of course, that was really beyond um, her financial capacity and there was also a shortage of um, building materials being just post-World War I. So, um, yeah, she ended up purchasing the property in 2018 and by the end of 2019 she was ready to open her garage that could house 22 cars, which shows how big it was. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. It was knocked down in the 50s. And she had a particularly high ceiling with windows in the ceiling so that there was light and there was air. So even though, you know, you'd get the motor running inside the garage, you wouldn't die of the fumes. So all other garages in those days were dark little gringy places, really, but not hers. Yeah, well, I, th- I think they, they are still dark little grim- grimsley places, aren't they? Really, I don't think they've actually improved since then, probably because they've had men designing them. So that that's actually quite yeah. incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to have that foresight and design it and somehow get the bank loan. So what, what mm. happened when she when she started off with, with the business and how did how did she manage to get all the female employees? Oh, look, they, were, they came from everywhere. And um, there was always, uh, between the two world wars, there was this um, short sort of window of opportunity for women to do things differently and to follow their dreams perhaps more than their mothers or grandmothers ever could. We're talking about we're going into the 1920s, the roaring 20s. There was money being thrown around. Um, she was in with the Hoi Polloi in, in Kew, Hawthorne, all those, that Camberwell. She chose her place very carefully because she knew that in those days, even though um, uh, cars were very popular in Australia and they got cheaper through to the 1920s, it, they still cost a lot to maintain. So it was really the upper middle and, and upper classes that had cars that needed to be serviced. Uh, but Um, because she'd been driving people around and taking them on tours as well, she'd also started to teach people to drive and she chose to just teach women initially Um, and some of them became her drivers from there. But also um, mothers of of girls in the country, they would uh, want their daughters to come down and be properly chaperoned, not by a man but by a woman. And even though... um, I'm sure Alice got up to quite a bit of mischief and she was a very cheeky, you know, woman that was not easily deterred by anything and she was, you know, barely in her 20s driving these women around because she'd take them on shopping tours and picnics and all that sort of stuff. And so she just became widely popular and uh, in the 1920s with 
all this new consumption going around and, and new products based around electricity. So, you know, that's when we've got the, the vacuum cleaners and electric light globes and all of that coming in. Um, there was a lot of uh, women's magazines that, and, and women short cut their hair short uh, and bobbed and, you know, for 500 years women had long tresses. So it was a shocking um, an exciting time, even though Melbourne, uh, which was the capital of Australia at that point, was still very, very conservative and there were backlashes uh, that came later on. But she was the sweetheart of the women's magazines and she started writing for um, Women's World magazine. She was friends with the woman that set that up. They were both members of the Lyceum Club. So she linked in with the Lyceum Club that um, got her... Uh, uh, clients as well and Melbourne University that she had links with through her father and her one of her younger sisters um, ended up studying she was the first woman to study engineering at Melbourne University uh, there were a lot of women there that became her clients um, so it just kind of built from there she was a novelty in a lot of ways great oh thanks so much for coming onto the program today you're very welcome. It's been an enjoyable chat. Speaking with Loretta Smith about Alice Anderson. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. Mm-hmm.